Since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the proportion of U.S. residents without health insurance has fallen from 16% to approximately 9%. The remaining uninsured population includes low-income people in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, people who are eligible for Medicaid or marketplace tax credits but aren't enrolled, and people who are ineligible for assistance for various reasons, including undocumented immigrants. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Matthew Fiedler, a fellow with the Center for Health Policy at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Fiedler has co-authored a perspective article about the steps needed to achieve universal health insurance coverage in the United States. Dr. Fiedler, what are the advantages and the disadvantages of building on the changes made by the ACA to achieve universal coverage when some policymakers and politicians now are calling for more wholesale changes to the health insurance system altogether? So I think there are three potential advantages to an approach that builds on the ACA relative to an approach that would replace the entire existing insurance coverage system with something like a single-payer system. The first is that by virtue of preserving most existing coverage arrangements, it would be less disruptive for people who have coverage now. That has obvious political advantages. I also think transitions are hard and it has certain substantive advantages as well. The second advantage of approaches that would build on the ACA is that they would have meaningfully lower fiscal cost. These types of approaches require additional outlays to get the current uninsured covered, but they don't bring the large majority of the private spending that's currently happening by the privately insured onto the federal government's balance sheet. And so as a result, the federal government would not need to raise nearly as much additional revenue to finance the expansion and coverage under this type of proposal. The third, I think, consideration in thinking about approaches that would build on the ACA versus single-payer approaches or similar approaches is the very fact that there would be multiple payers under this type of approach versus a single-payer under single-payer approach. I think that is a feature that has both advantages and disadvantages. Certainly, having multiple payers is more complex for providers, for patients, for everyone who has to interact with the healthcare system. I think on the other side of the coin, having multiple payers does provide some greater scope for innovation in either provider payment or what types of services are covered under insurance that might not exist under a single-payer system. I'll also say that I don't think this needs to be a purely either-or. Obviously, you can only have one of these situations operating at once, but I think it's an entirely consistent view for somebody to view their long-term ideal system as being a single-payer system but viewing a path to universal coverage that builds on our existing coverage institutions as their preferred near-term path. The first step toward achieving universal coverage that you outline in your article involves the federal government's increasing or reducing the federal matching rate for state Medicaid spending on the basis of the state's decision about whether to expand Medicaid or not. So has the government ever used changes to that rate to encourage states to adopt certain policies? Certainly, there have been examples in the past that have been more targeted. Obviously, the original concept under the ACA was that states would lose all of their Medicaid funding under their existing programs if they declined to adopt the expansion, but that was determined unconstitutional. But there have been narrower examples where Congress has offered a higher matching rate for particular services or offered a higher matching rate if a state made a particular change to its benefit package. All of them are meaningfully smaller scale than this. You also recommend increasing and expanding eligibility for the subsidies that are available through the ACA's health insurance marketplaces. So who would receive such subsidies under your proposal and how would they be funded? 
So the additional people that would receive subsidies under the proposals fall into a couple of main buckets. First is people who have incomes above 400% of the poverty line who are not eligible for subsidies today would now be eligible for some subsidies, at least in some instances. Additionally, people who have an offer of coverage at work that is deemed affordable under the current rules of the Affordable Care Act would now be able to decline that employer offer and instead take up the subsidies in the marketplace, which would generally offer many of those people either a lower premium or a lower cost-sharing option that they have today. I think what's important to keep in mind is the proposal we've put together here would also increase subsidies for many people who are eligible for subsidies today. If we look at the current uninsured population, many of the people who are uninsured are people who would have been eligible for subsidies even under existing rules, but continue to find that coverage unaffordable. We have quite a bit of evidence that reducing the net premiums people pay by increasing subsidies can help draw some of those people into the insurance market. In terms of financing, both these subsidies and the bonuses for Medicaid expansion that would lead to additional states expanding Medicaid would have a federal fiscal cost. I think you could imagine a number of different ways of financing that cost. The federal government could raise more revenue by increasing taxes and has a variety of instruments to do that. The federal government could think about reducing payments it makes in existing health care programs. So it could think about reducing Medicare payment rates in a variety of ways. And there are a range of bipartisan proposals for ways to do that that could raise significant funds. And I think the federal government could also consider steps that would reduce the unit prices of healthcare services paid by privately insured people. That would both directly reduce the cost of expanding subsidies, but by reducing the cost of employer-provided coverage would lead to increases in wages and salaries among workers that would translate into higher income and payroll taxes for the federal government. You talk in your article about what you call a backstop insurance plan for people who aren't eligible for Medicaid or CHIP and who don't have any other coverage. What would such a program look like? The way the backstop would work is a person who sought care and did not have other coverage would receive coverage through this backstop plan. Then at the end of the year, the IRS, based on data on people's coverage status that they're already actually collecting under the ACA, would look across each individual and say, you were covered by employer coverage for six months out of the year, but we're not covered under that employer coverage for the other six months of the year. So, and assess a premium for the backstop coverage based on those six months where the individual did not have other coverage. People could offset that premium based on the subsidies they would have been eligible for if they had enrolled in coverage through the individual market on a prospective basis. So we've taken care of all legal U.S. residents. What options are there for expanding coverage to undocumented immigrants? I think broadly, there are two pathways you could think about going down. One, which probably is my preferred approach, would be some approach to comprehensive immigration reform that provides a path to legal residency and ultimately citizenship for undocumented immigrants. I think that has a wealth of advantages. It certainly solves the health policy problem here, but has a lot of benefits outside of the health policy realm. I think the other approach one could consider would be to directly try to address access to health insurance and health care for undocumented immigrants by changing eligibility rules for health care programs. I know some states are considering steps in this direction on their own. I think it remains to be seen whether that's a feasible approach at the federal level. Finally, which of your proposals do you see as politically feasible given the current climate, and what would have to change for the others to be seriously considered? 
So I think, frankly, very little of the proposals we've put forward right now are feasible over the next two years. I think there's, frankly, a fundamental division between the two parties where I think the Democratic Party is interested in expanding coverage and willing to spend federal funds to do that. And most Republicans, while they may be interested in expanding coverage, are not particularly interested in approaches that would involve additional federal spending. So I think the types of proposals we're talking about here are ones that are most likely to find a receptive audience in a period of unified democratic control of both houses of Congress and the presidency. And obviously, the soonest that could happen would be after the 2020 elections. Thank you, Dr. Fiedler.